quote, if I can quote that. It's difficult in times like these. Ideals, dreams and cherished hopes, they can rise within us only to be crushed by grim reality. It's a wonder I haven't abandoned all my ideals. They seem so absurd and impractical. Yet, I cling to them because I still believe, after all this time, that people are truly good at heart. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing human stories of refugees. Today we're talking with Diana Serhall from the Anne Frank Center. She's a graduate assistant at the University of South Carolina and worked in the education department of the Anne Frank House. Your host for today is Claire Mattis. Hi everyone, my name is Diana Serhal. I am originally from Hungary, but I was living in Amsterdam in the Netherlands for more than three years. Uh, the reason for that was that I started working there for the educational department of the M. Frank House at the beginning of 2017. In 2020 August, I arrived to South Carolina, Columbia, because now I am a graduate student here. This is my second year at a master's program here. And I am also working for the M. Frank Center of USC, which is uh, one of the partners of the M. Frank House. Awesome. Um, could you just describe to us how you got involved with the Anne Frank Center here? And um, oh yeah, I guess just about your career and like you know mm-hmm. your goals with the Anne Frank Center. So actually, growing up and also at the beginning of my twenties, I wanted to become a writer and a screenplay writer. I went to journalism schools. I went to a, a motion picture master, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, in two thousand and fifteen, I first read the Diary of Anne Frank, and I couldn't get. Uh, it out of my head. I just had to know more about her story, like her story story really touched my heart. And then in 2016, February, one of my best friends, one of my best friends, she moved to Amsterdam and I went there to visit her. And as a tourist, I started, I I just went to the M. Frank house for the first time. And the experience was kind of life-changing, just so you understand, uh, the Netherlands is quite a rainy country. And I wasn't prepared for that. So I wasn't bringing the right shoes. So in the first few days when I was there, I was like, oh my God, my shoes are always wet. My feet is wet. Why is this happening to me? My life is so hard. Oh my God. And then I go to the M. Frank house. And then I come out. And my first takeaway is, maybe I shouldn't complain about small things anymore. Maybe I actually have it like quite well, not like some other people. And if Anne could... Uh, keep her hope and her strength during twen- for 25 months being in hiding when she was much younger than me, maybe I can do the same. So that's how first I got introduced to her story. And then in the same year, I saw that the M. Frank House, the educational department was looking for volunteers. Now in Europe, there is this special program that they call European Voluntary Service. Any person can get this who is under the age of 30. You can do this program once in your life. And uh, basically, you can go to a foreign European country, to an organization for maximum one year, where you're going to be a full-time volunteer. But in return, they pay for your plane ticket, accommodation, and you get a bit of pocket money every month. So it's just a good experience for you, and it's a win-win for everybody. And I applied for the M. Frank House, and they actually chose me and another girl from Croatia. 
And uh, we went there at the beginning of 2017. I was losing my mind. I was so happy. My second day at the Anne Frank house, I knew this is what I wanted to do until the rest of my life. Like my dream of becoming a writer, like just slowly faded away. I was writing a screenplay at the time. I was writing a novel and I was writing less and less and like, yeah, not that interested anymore. I like education. This is amazing. Writing, just not anymore. Uh, and basically then, thankfully, my boss there really liked me and I got to stay at the M. Frank house after my EVS ended. And in 2018, Dr. Doris Stevik, who is our professor here at USC and also our external colleague, he did a May master with the USC group for like two weeks in the Netherlands. And I was the organizer from the Dutch side. That's how we got acquainted and he really liked the way I worked. So when this M. Frank Center was opening here at USC, this uh, permanent exhibition, he contacted me in 2019 that he just really wants someone here that he knows and he can trust, etc., etc. Would I be interested in coming here? And I thought, I've literally never been in this continent before. New experience, new work experience, new traveling experiences and everything. Unfortunately, uh, I couldn't get a work visa but I could get a student visa. And uh, now I'm a graduate assistant here with my student visa. And that's how I arrived here. And I'm very happy that I'm in the M. Frank system. I've been in the M. Frank system for almost five years now. Never want to leave. <laughs> and I did want to know, so since you've had experience with the Anne Frank House and the Anne Frank Center, um, could you describe like the different experience between the original house and here? Yes, so uh, I think this exhibition here was done extremely well. They did the best that they could to give back the feeling of the M. Frank house, like even, you know, covered the windows. We have some furniture here from a mini series that the M. Frank house did, like really like the furniture that they had. Like, I mean, it looked, looks like the furniture that they had, but being in the M. Frank house, doing my tours there is just going to be different. It's just so indescribable when I, I usually give like, give like private VIP tours. And uh, that meant that for my visitors, we could go into a few places in the museum, in the house, which was not open to the general public. One of these places was the private office of Otto Frank. The private office of Otto Frank is just below the room of Otto, Edith and Margot in the hiding place. And you can hear the creaking of the, from the footsteps of the visitors who are in the hiding place. And let me tell you, up there, nobody is running or jumping around. Everybody's walking really silently and really slowly, and you can still hear the creaking. And you can understand why the people in hiding were so afraid that they would be discovered. You can literally hear everything. So just... The different experience is when you're there and you're giving the tour. For instance, when it comes to like, for my visitors being emotional, crying, etc., etc., it happened much more at the M. Frank house. They also get emotional here, of course, but there, the tears just start to come. Uh, it's just the feeling like they were actually here. So that experience is different. And also our educational activities, not just by the way between the Netherlands and Hunger, Netherlands and the U.S. Also, Netherlands and Hungary does like different kind of stuff, or Croatia, or Poland, etc., etc. For instance, what we, to my knowledge, don't have a 
yet didn't have in the Netherlands and in Hungary is theater performances. However, that is quite popular here in the US. We have a theater performance for primary and middle school schools that's called Conversations with Anne. An actress playing Anne, she's giving a performance and um, we also have virtual tours of the secret annex as how Anne put it in her diary um, and uh, the actress in character is giving that tour virtually and then she answers questions from the kids. For instance, that's for middle schoolers mainly, that's a very popular theatrical performance and for more um, older or, or adult people, we have another theatrical performance that's called Anne and Martin, because Anne Frank and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., they were both born in the same year, and they were both uh, had to do stuff with human rights, and they were both victims of uh, discrimination. So we have an actor who plays Martin, and Anne, an actress who plays Anne, and it's basically a two-people show. And this, I had to learn everything from the basics, because these we don't have in Europe, to my knowledge. So there are different activities, what we do. And also, it's different how we do trainings. So my colleagues in the US learned from me some of the activities that I did in Hungary, and I learned from them activities that they do here. So it's, of course, the base is the same, but very differently how they put it. So I learned a lot. Can you tell us about what the Anne Frank Center here is? Um... You know, what is the general mission of the center? And I guess, uh, like, when did this project begin? Mm -hmm. So the M. Frank House has very few permanent partners with permanent exhibitions around the world. We have many traveling exhibitions, but very few that is permanent. For instance, we have a permanent partner in the United Kingdom, the Anne Frank Trust. However, they don't have a permanent Anne Frank exhibition. We have a permanent partner in Berlin, Germany, the Anne Frank Zentrum. They also have a permanent exhibition. And the third one like this is in Buenos Aires, Argentina, the Anna Frank Centro permanent partner with exhibition. And then the last one is basically Columbia, South Carolina, and Frank Center, permanent, permanent. Um, now, this is largely thanks to President Pastides. Now, when he was uh, the just normal president of USC, uh, many years ago, he visited the M. Frank House in Amsterdam, and he just couldn't get the experience out of his head. And he was in very good terms with our external M. Frank colleague, Dr. Doyle Stevik, who was also a professor here at USC. And Doyle just always tells this story like this, like in 2018, when President Pastides announced his retirement, on that day, they were talking with Doyle, and Doyle said, you know, if we would have a space in campus, we could bring one of our traveling exhibitions here for a few months for students to see it. And to that, President Pastides' eyes lit up, and he said, I have a house. And they were starting to think about this. Why a traveling? Why not a permanent one? He just basically gave like his, the office, the bottom of his office building for us to use. Here we could establish our traveling, our exhibition, our seminar rooms, etc., etc. So it's largely, largely thanks to President Pastidis, who is now back. He's the interim president. Thanks to Doyle, uh, thanks to the M. Frank House and USC. It's very hard to put the mission in just to a few words, but the M. Frank Center states on its website, it's quite simple, but that's, I think, where the beauty of it is. It states that the M. Frank Center 
with our educational activities, we try to create a better, a more fair and a more kind world that Anne Frank envisioned and what she would have deserved. I also love this quote from Otto Frank, who was Anne's father and the only survivor out of the eight people in hiding. Uh, he said that we can not change what happened anymore. The only thing that we can do is to realize what the persecution of innocent people means. I believe it's everybody's responsibility to fight prejudice. Um, our mission can be summed up with these quotes. Our mission is basically that with our educational activities, try to inspire people to be aware of what's happening, what happened in the past, but also to learn from the past and be aware of what's happening in the present. Be aware of the current discrimination, the current prejudice, the current violation of human rights that's happening. We are trying to, to, to learn from the past. As Otto Frank put it, um, don't teach history lessons, teach the lessons of history. And uh, we always share this very beautiful Anne Frank quote, also one of my personal favorites, how wonderful it is that nobody needs to wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. And I could go on for 10 minutes just for the mission, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, could you, I guess, tell us about um, Anne's life and kind of what her, um, I guess, her family's attempts to move here before the war began, everything about that? So Otto Frank and Edith Hollander, they were both German Jews. They got married in 1925. One year later, their first daughter, Margot, was born. And in 1929, June the 12th, Anne Frank was born as well. Uh, now, a couple of years after her birth, in 1933, the Nazi party rose to power with Adolf Hitler as its uh, leader. Uh, at that point, the Frank family decided to leave Germany because they could feel that anti-Semitism was growing. They decided to come to the Netherlands. Now, interestingly, actually, they had two countries to choose from, to where to go, the Netherlands and Switzerland. That was because Otto Frank was a very smart man. He was actually fighting in World War I for Germany, and he knew, well, both countries, Netherlands and Switzerland, remained neutral in World War I. If there might be trouble again, those two countries seem to be safe to go to. In Switzerland, he had some family members, but in the Netherlands, he was offered a job. So he thought, well, I need to provide for my family. That's why they ended up in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And for a while, it was relatively a safe place for them, especially the children. They could have a relatively carefree life here. However, in 1939, so that's when Anne is 10 years old, Second World War breaks out. The Netherlands wants to remain neutral. The Nazis and Hitler don't care about this. Netherlands gets overrun, overrun in 1940 May within five days. They take the whole country. Now, the thing is that at the end of the 1930s, beginning of the 1940s, uh, the Frank family again tried to leave and they tried to come to the U.S., now, that is because in the 1910s, Otto Frank was actually living in the U.S. for a few years, and he actually had friends at Macy's, you know, quite, um, how do you say it in English, influential friends. Mm -hmm. Also, Edith, Otto's wife, she had two elder brothers living in the U.S. already. Now, you would say these seem like fairly good odds. They could not make it to the U.S. The bureaucracy, the paperwork literally took forever, 
And just so you understand, they weren't the only Jewish refugees who wanted to seek refuge in the US or in any other countries in Europe uh, or in the world. But other than England, England said, we accept Jewish children refugees. Even England said no adults, just children. Other than England, almost every country has closed their borders in front of the Jewish refugees, or they make it very hard for a Jewish refugee to come to that country. So if we're talking about the US, for the average Jewish refugee around that time to come to the US, the average waiting line was almost 11 years long. And it became even harder after Pearl Harbor happened, 7th of December 1941, because after Pearl Harbor, the US officially enters the war, it becomes even harder for uh, especially German Jewish refugees to come to the US. So that's why at the beginning of 42, when Otto Frank realizes that we can't, we can't make it to the US, that's when they decide that, okay, then next logical choice, let's go into hiding in Amsterdam. The only thing left to do for them to try to ensure their safety. And I have this data from Echoes and Reflections. They say that uh, after Crystal Night, the night of the broken glass happened, which was 38 November, the very first big physical attack against the Jewish people, they asked the American public of what you think of Crystal Night. 90 plus percent said, terrible. Second question was, do you then promote easier access for the Jewish people to come to the US? Only 20 plus percent said yes. And what's interesting is that they asked Roosevelt, the president, the same things. He also said that Crystal Night should, nev- should have never happened. It was awful. Second question, would you like to accept more Jewish refugees? His answer was, we have a quota. When talking about, I guess, after the war, could you describe to us some of Otto Frank's contributions? Could you describe to us some of the influential things that he did? Yes, so... Otto Frank gets liberated at the end of January in 45 in Auschwitz. He makes it back to Amsterdam in 45 June. World War II is going to be over in September 45. Now, soon after his arrival, he gets the news that his family is no more. That's when he receives the diary from one of the helpers. First, he actually wants to keep the diary for himself. He feels like it's only for him. He only shares it with a few specific people who were like mentioned in the diary and friends, uh, the helpers, etc., etc. And it's those people who tell him, your daughter wanted to become a writer. She literally says like, imagine how it would be if I would publish a book about our experiences called The Secret Annex. And then Otto realizes, okay, I, I need to publish this book. I, I need to uphold her wish. They actually... Uh, publish a censored version of the diary. Otto Frank takes out some parts when Anne was really bad-mouthing her mother, like really harshly, and some other people. And the publisher takes out some parts when Anne is talking about her menstruation, etc., etc., which is now not a big deal, but back then it was. So anyway, in 47, the diary first gets published. I think this would be Otto's like first contribution when it comes to Anne Frank's work for the world. By the way, after seven years, he remarries to another Holocaust survivor who lost her husband and her son, but not her daughter in the Holocaust. So these two people, they find each other, they get married, and they move to Switzerland. To Switzerland because Switzerland, thank God, was not occupied during World War II. So Otto thinks, if there might be trouble again, let's go to Switzerland. 
and before his death he opens the Anne Frank House in 1960, May the 3rd, and he travels to many countries. We know that he traveled to Japan, for instance, to talk about uh, his experiences, to talk about the legacy of her daughter. The first Anne Frank play and Anne Frank movie gets made in the 1950s. He's there for the directors, for the writers, to answer any questions, to help them, although he never watched any finished product. He was like, this is too painful for me. But uh, he tries to answer all the letters. He's establishing an Anne Frank youth network. We have a letter from him that he wrote in 1967, where he writes, it's so good that in Germany, many German young people are also enthusiastic about Anne's diary and about our work. Wouldn't it be good to establish a youth network? Like such a network should be based on human rights. This is what he's talking about in the letter. So publication of the diary, even though a censored one, but still being there for the plays, for the movies, opening of the Anne Frank House, establishing the youth network, and uh, also putting it like not just as a museum, but also as an educational foundation. So he dies in 1980, but the impact that he makes in the Anne Frank House and the educational department that lives on because five years after his death, the first traveling exhibition titled Anne Frank in the World, so in 1985, June the 12th, the first Anne Frank exhibition launches. And uh, up until Corona hit, like we've been active in 90 different countries around the world with our traveling exhibitions. And that is all Anne's legacy, Otto's legacy, and all the people, of course, who helped uh, Otto and the others establish this whole thing. I actually really, really like this quote from Otto, because at the opening of the mu museum, he said that this place is not intended as a museum. It's a warning from the past and a mission of hope for the future. What do you think the importance is of sharing personal stories like Anne's story in the context of something so big like the Holocaust? I feel like people can really relate to one person's story. Anne was a very complex character and she was quite mature for her age. And it's also remarkable the amount of uh, material that she wrote and the amount of material that we have from her. So because of all of this, people really resonate with her. I also think that there is a, another reason why people really gravitate to her. In the diary, she talks about this uh, different times, and Otto actually also mentions this, is one of his interviews, that it was quite shocking for him when he first read the diary, that like how self-critical Anne was. And Anne talks about this like, one of my strongest qualities is my self-criticism. And she talks about this aspect of her. She says that actually I have two ends, the bad end and the good end. The bad end can't take anything seriously. She's a clown. She's always talking. Like you can read in the diary that some of the other people whom she's hiding with, they say you are shamefully self-centered, etc., etc. That is bad end. But she says there is the good end who's more serious, who's more silent, who's taking things more seriously, who, as she puts in the diary in different occasions, wants to go out and work for mankind, who wants to bring enjoyment for people, even those she's never met, who basically says, 
give, give, every person can help each other, etc. You know, like you would say that's a very selfless person. But she says the good end is, the, is in the inside. The good end is for me. And the problem is I'm showing the bad end to the outside. And she's talking about this in her diary that she would like to change that. She would like the good end to be on the outside. And that's what she's working on. But while she's working on this, she gets captured. And I think every person, if I would ask every person in this room, raise your hand if you've ever done something, said something, and then you said, this is not me. I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I said that. It's not the real me. That's what Anne is talking about. And no matter who you are, where you come from, how old are you, you can be like, yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, I know that. That's me. So I think Anne is just really real. Yes, she's very mature. Yes, she has beautiful thoughts. Yes, uh, she's quite funny, actually. But the one thing that we share with her is this feeling of like my good side, my bad side. I want people to see the real me. And I think that's why her story really touches us. Because when we say six million Jews were murdered, actually out of every three Jewish person in Europe, only one survived. And 1.5 million of the murdered Jews were children. That's terrible. It, it touches you. But a very, very personal story when you get to know one person like really, really well, and then suddenly diary ends. That's it. It touches you even more deeply. So that's why I think her story, her private story resonates with us in a personal level. What do you think is the importance of teaching about the Holocaust and what's the best way to go about it to really get through to people how big of a problem it was? I'm sure you've all heard this about the Holocaust when you go to a Holocaust museum or you hear about it in a lesson, never again, right? I can see people nodding here. It's going to be quite heavy. What I'm about to say, never again is happening again. The Holocaust is not just about like the genocide against the Jewish people, the genocide against all these other groups of people that in the Nazis' mind, they were inferior to them, like Roma people, African-American people, homosexuals, disabled, etc., etc. It's also about the violation of human rights. Now, the thing is that many, many decades after World War II ended, we talked about the Declaration of Human Rights, but it's not like everybody lived happily ever after, after that. If I say this, many of my students start to like smile to the absurdity of what I just said, because stereotype, prejudice, discrimination, violation of human rights still exist today. So actually one of our traveling exhibitions title is literally history for today. Learning about the Holocaust, you learn that it didn't happen overnight. It happened when Hitler and the Nazis started to make their propaganda. And Hitler was writing Mein Kampf, when they were slowly starting to make people believe that the Jews are to blame to all, about all the problems that Germany or the world ever had and ever will. It took a long time until the actual Holocaust, the actual crystal night, the actual gas chambers, the actual mobile killing units happened. So the Holocaust was not inevitable. It was a series of choices. And the Holocaust 
uh, more people could have been saved if there would have been more upstanders rather than bystanders. Now you might say, okay, Diana, but the punishment for uh, people who were helping Jews was extremely harsh. They could have faced death or they could have been brought to the camps themselves. I understand that many people were afraid. You shouldn't step up when the trouble is already extremely big. When the first anti-Jewish decree gets passed, that's when you have to step up like, no, no, we don't go further. That's it. And we stop the discrimination right there. Not when the trouble is like already extremely big. So what we can learn from this? Well, anti-Semitism didn't start with the Nazis. It didn't die with the Nazis. Anti-Semitism still exists today. Actually, Holocaust survivors still, uh, there are some still alive today. And all the discrimination and some of the ideologies that were back then are still circle around in the present world. And we need to understand why it would have been so important in the past to be aware of how propaganda manipulates, to be aware of the red flags around you, to how important like good education could have been. It's the same in the present. You need to realize how important it is to learn from the past because never again is happening again. And we should all take our part to try to stop it. That was Diana Serhoff from the Anne Frank Center talking to us about Anne's legacy and remembering the Holocaust. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and comment below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.